Welcome. We are so glad to have you here with us. My name is Judah. I'm the lead pastor here at Thrive, and we are in a series called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Anybody grow up watching uh, old Western movies? Okay. Yeah, I, I love old Westerns, and it was usually something about a, you know, a sheriff that comes to town and, and cleans up everything, and, and, and they were usually kind of a rough and tough kind of a, kind of a person that, that would come in and maybe had some unethical means to to round up the riffraff in town. And, and so throughout this series, we're actually taking a look at the book of Judges in the Bible. And, and the judges were much like the sheriffs of the Wild West. Uh, this was the Israelites, the Jewish nation. They had been brought out of slavery in Egypt, but they didn't have really a king or a ruler. They had these judges, these rough riders who would kind of use some unethical means at times to bring order into the area, bring order into uh, the country, the, the nation of Israel. The problem was, was that the Jewish people had this cycle that they were trapped in. They were trapped in this cycle. The cycle was this. They would follow God and everything would be great. But then they would reject God and they would begin to worship idols. And as they begin to worship idols, then God would get mad at them. God would then turn them over to their enemies. At this point, the Israelites would get upset. They would repent. They would turn from their ways, turn from worshiping false gods, and then they would ask God for forgiveness. God would then send a deliverer, send a judge to come and help them. They would be saved. They would follow God, but then they would turn to their idols. And it was over and over and over again. And they'd go on this cycle over and over, turning to God falling away from God, turning to God, falling away from God. And that's where we see many of these judges stepping in at a point where God is very frustrated with the Israelites. If we look in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, it says, how much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon. Now we talked about Gideon last week and how he was a, a, a mighty man of, of valor. He was a, a great warrior, but he didn't start out that way. He kind of started out as, as being afraid, uh, hiding from the enemy. It says, but it would take too long to recount the stories of faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms. They ruled with justice. They received what God promised them. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the flames of fire. And they escaped death from the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned into strength. And they became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. So we're going to be talking about one of these judges today. He's back up there in verse 32. His name was Jephthah. You can circle that if you want. Jephthah. J-E-P-H-T-H-A-H. If you're looking for a, a name to name your son, probably don't pick this one, okay? It's kind of a tongue twister. Jephthah. Maybe we should call him Jeff for short, but it's Jeff with a P-H, not with two Fs. Jeff, or not the G-E-O-F-F one, not that one either. Um, this is Jephthah, and, and he had character in the face of difficulty. He had character in the face of difficulty. He had courage in the face of danger. And he overcame all odds to be a mighty man of God. All odds were stacked against Jephthah. But yet most of us, we don't even know who he is. 
He's one of the more obscure people in the Bible. Maybe some of you have heard of him. He has a couple stories that kind of like, oh yeah, I heard of that. But, but for the most part, Jephthah's not someone we really talk about. Well, Israel was in a bad place right now. Israelites were worshiping false gods. They had these two gods, Baal and Ashtoreth, and they were worshiping them, doing all kinds of horrible things, and and even child sacrifice, worshiping these false gods. They had totally abandoned God. We see this line keep coming up through the book of Judges, and it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Imagine a world like that. Maybe it's kind of like the world we live in now. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. If it feels good to it, I'm just going to do what's right in my own eyes. Oh, I want to steal something? Sure, I'll steal. I want to hurt somebody? Sure, I'm going to hurt them. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So God turned them over to their enemies. The enemies, the Ammonites, for 18 long years. 18 years, they were at war with the Ammonites. And at the peak, the Ammonites were, were poised to entirely destroy Israel. The Ammonites, for those of you maybe that know the story of, of Abraham and Lot, Lot was Abraham's nephew. Ammonites were the descendants of Lot. So that's who they're uh, battle with. It's like, you know, they're far, far, far removed cousins, but they're at war here. And finally, as they're 18 years in this battle, Israel calls out to God. Again, continuing this cycle. That now they're in, uh, in, in battle, they call out to God, they, they apologize to God, they ask God for forgiveness. And you know what God says? He says, no, I don't want to forgive you. You want forgiveness? You want help now? You want help? Go ask your gods, Baal and Asherah. Go ask them to help you see what they do. That's essentially what God said. You're like, God's loving and forgiving. Now, he was kind of ticked off. Like, he was kind of fed up with what they did. He's like, no, no, I don't want to help you. And then they begin to beg and plead. They're like, God, please help us. We will turn from our old ways. We'll turn from our idol worship and we'll follow you. It's one thing that we know that's consistently true about God every single time in your notes is that God is always willing to forgive those who call on him for help. He's always willing to forgive. And he was willing to forgive them in this situation He was willing to forgive them for turning their backs on him and worshiping these false gods. God is always willing to forgive. And it's reassuring for me to know that God is always willing to forgive me too. He's always willing to forgive you too. No matter how far we stray, he's always willing to forgive. So, the Israelites, they rejected their gods and God forgave them. But the Ammonites, they gathered together for war. They prepared for war. Listen to what it says in Judges Uh, Chapter 10, verse 18. It says, The leaders of Gilead said to each other, Whoever attacks the Ammonites first will become the ruler over all the people of Gilead. It's kind of an interesting proposition there. It's like, whoever whoever wants to lead, go nuts. Like, just jump in the front, go lead, and you'll be the, the ruler. It's kind of like, like, you know, the old, you know, story, the, the sword and the stone, right? It's like, like, whoever can pull the sword out of the stone will become the king of Camelot. And only, you know, King Arthur, he removes the sword from the stone. And, and that's kind of what they're doing. They're saying, here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. We need someone to save us. We need a warrior. Someone who can lead us into battle. They said, I need a hero. That's what they were saying. They're like, we need a hero. We need somebody who can come and save us. That's when Jephthah shows up. Jephthah shows up. Jeff, he was a brash man, but he was full of principle. He was brash, but but he had character. He had integrity. He was a man of his word. 
In your notes, God is looking to use people with godly character. That's what Jephthah had. He was kind of rough and tough. The good, the bad, and the ugly, I don't know. He was somewhere maybe between bad and ugly, but, but he had character. He was a man of his word. And if anybody could blame his past, could blame his upbringing, could blame these things, it would be him because the deck was stacked against him. All odds were against him. He was not born into privilege. He had this dark shadow that had been following him his entire life. We see this in Judges chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah of Gilead was a great warrior. Now that's interesting to see right there, right? Because we talked about Gideon last week, and, and he really wasn't a great warrior. He became a great warrior over time, but at the time God called him, he was not a great warrior. Jephthah, on the other hand, was a great warrior, and he was the son of Gilead. So they're in Gilead. He's the son of Gilead. It implies that he would have a position of honor, but his mother was a prostitute. So it's kind of a problem. Gilead's wife also had several other sons, and when these half-brothers grew up, they chased Jephthah off the land. Why? He said, you will not get any of our father's inheritance, they said, for you're the son of a prostitute. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Soon he had a band of worthless rebels following him. Man, he's like goes out there and starts a gang, right? It's like they're out there. They got the gang signs. They're doing, you know, stuff with the bandana, all that. And here he is, he's a son of a hooker, and he's ostracized from his family, he's got a gang. And yet in the end, he ends up in the hall of faith. We just read about him in Hebrews. Oh, how, you know, don't forget about the faith of Jephthah. Only God could do such a thing. Only God could take this ragtag guy who is rejected by society and turn him around and put him into the hall of fame of the people of faith. Now, he was cast out of town, and it's easy to say, well, yeah, because he was son of a prostitute. That's why they cast him out. It really wasn't that so much. They didn't really care about that. What they cared about was money. That's what they cared about. It says that right there, right? It says, you will not get any of our father's inheritance. So it was a money thing. They said, you can't claim our property. You can't claim money. You can't claim our, our crops and our livestock. So he was rejected over this inheritance, and he's kicked out, and now he he gets this band, it says there in, in verse 3, he has a band of worthless rebels. That sounds kind of harsh, you know, worthless rebels. I, I think what it's really meaning, though, is, is worthless, like, like, like worth less, worth less than everyone else. Most likely, they were rejects just like Jephthah was. They were rejects of society. They didn't have an inheritance either. Maybe they had been ostracized from their friends and the family as well. And he kind of rounds them all together, gives them a mission, and says, hey, you know what? Let's go make something. They don't have an inheritance. So they literally had to fight to get anything they had. Most likely, they formed this little group, and they were probably raiding the enemy towns, going in and taking the provisions, taking the things that they wanted. How do we know that? Because we, the first thing we learned about Jephthah was that he was a mighty warrior. So he had been running these little raids for quite some time, had this little gang operation going there. Now, Jephthah had no control over his past. He had no control of, over his birth, how he was born, who he was born to. He had no inheritance but he could move forward into the future regardless. He could move forward with what God had instead uh, in front of him, and as a result, he became a great warrior, which is the first thing we learn about him. The thing that encourages me about the story of Jephthah is in your notes that your past does not have to determine your future. Some of us, we have shady pasts. 
We have things in our past that we wish we could forget. We wish other people would forget. Yes, we have things in our past, but your past does not have to determine your future. You do not have to follow your past into the future. You can be unshackled from your past. You can rise above your past. You can get past your past. You know, you don't have any control over the character of your ancestors, but you can determine the destiny of your descendants. You don't have any control over who brought you up, who raised you, who your parents were, but you have control over the next generation that you are leading and guiding. See, in our environment, can influence us to make a lot of bad choices. We can blame all kinds of things. We can blame our environment for all kinds of things that we do. But one thing that we see about Jephthah is that you can rise above these things. You can rise above these things and you can make the right choices. You don't have to be defined by the choices that that were made for you. You don't have to be defined by those things. You can move past your past. So we're going to continue on here. Verse 4. About that time, the Ammonites began their war against Israel. So the Ammonites, they've surrounded, they're coming to war. When the Ammonites attacked, the elders of Gilead sent for Jephthah in the land of Tob. The elders said, come be our commander, help us fight the Ammonites. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? You know, it's interesting to to think sometimes the very people who sent you away are the very people that God uses to bring you back. The very same people that that send you away, that reject you, they're they're, they're calling you back. And that's what we see here. Gilead is saying, hey, Jephthah, you remember us? He's like, oh, yeah, I remember you. You're the people who kicked me out of my land. Hey, why don't you come back? He says, come be our commander. Help us fight the Ammonites. Verse 7. But Jephthah said to them, aren't you the ones who hated me? And drove me from my father's house. It's like, yeah, you want me to come back now. After all you did, after the, the, the pain and the turmoil, after you rejected me, now you come crawling on your knees and you want me to come back now? You want me to, wh- why do you want me to come back now while you're in trouble? I'm like, because we need you, the elders replied. If you lead us into battle against the Ammonites, we will make you ruler over all the people of Gilead. They realized that Jephthah was a warrior that he was a, a, a mighty warrior, that, that he was a great person of battle. They pushed him away, and now they want him back. They ostracized him. They rejected him. They kicked him out of society. Now they're begging him, pleading, won't you come back? Kind of makes me think sometimes of the way we treat God. Right, you know, like in our own life, we're like, you know what, God, we don't need you. Things are going pretty good. I don't need you in my life right now. We want you to go away. I don't want you to be involved with the everyday circumstances of my life. I think I got this on my own. I don't need you. But when the going gets tough, what do we do? We start saying, God, will you come and help me out now? Will you come and bail me out now? God, come back. I'll make you the Lord of my life if you just do what I ask you to do. I'll serve you if you just save me. So Jephthah, he does return. And they make an agreement together. They sign a contract that if he wins this war, that they will make him the leader of the Israelites. So they sign this agreement, but who really chose him? See, even though they ratified it in a document saying if you win, you'll be the leader, it wasn't them that chose Jephthah, it was God who chose him. See, it was God who put him in that position 
Had it not been the fact that Jephthah had been excluded from society, had gone off and started this rebel gang terrorizing the villages, he would not have had the military experience enough that he needed to come back and lead the people of Israel, to lead these people into battle. But he had been rejected, and as a result, he had been toughened through battle. See, in your notes, only God can turn rejection into triumph. Only God can turn around the situations in life, the times that you've been rejected and hurt and left alone and abused. Only God can turn these things around and make them into triumph, make them into victory. So here we see the Ammonites, and they're ready to attack. So you know what Jephthah does? He does a wise thing. He doesn't charge into battle. He goes out to negotiate with them. He goes to them and said, hey, you know what? Before we get into the whole bloodshed, let's just talk this thing out. Let's see if we can work this out like civilized people. He didn't strike first. He was rational. He had a cool head. This was a battle over land. See, the Ammonites, they wanted the land that Gilead was on. And so Jephthah, though, while he was in his exile, while he was away, he had still began to study the scriptures, he studied the law, he studied the history of the Jewish people, and he understood how God worked in the nation of Israel. So he explains to the enemies how God gave them this land. He said, this land was never your land, Ammonites. It wasn't your land to begin with. There was another nation 300 years ago, and we came through, the Israelites came through, and they, and they tried to negotiate, but they would not negotiate, so they uh, launched an attack against us, and God handed the land over to us. So Jephthah basically says, God gave us this land. It was never yours. It's ours. It's been ours for 300 years. You keep the land that your supposed gods gave you, and we'll keep the land that our God gave us. So the Ammonites, being the nice people that they are, they said, we declare war, <laughs> you know. They're like, we're not going to negotiate with you. We're not negotiating. So they declare war on them. And then uh, here's, here's kind of the, the part that, if you've read the Bible much, maybe this story is, is maybe what you know about Jephthah, okay. Because um, he kind of does something a little dumb here. Uh, Judges 11.30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hand, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Don't make vows like that for crying out loud. <sighs> Jephthah. Okay, yeah, let's read that again. Um, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went out to fight the Ammonites, and God gave them into his hands. It's an amazing victory. They go and they, they annihilate 20 different towns. They destroy the Ammonites. They totally crush them. Like this wasn't even a fair fight. God turned them over. But Jephthah did something dumb. He made this vow, this stupid vow. Like God never asked him for a vow. He didn't say, let's make a deal, Jephthah. No, no, he said, I chose you. Go to battle. And he's like, I'll make a deal with you, God. And God must be like, no, don't make a deal. Don't make a deal with me, please. God never asked for this. See, God doesn't want our relationship with him to be transactional. Right? Like, it's not like, a, oh, I'll trade you. You know, like when you're kids and you're trade, trading something for lunch. I'll trade you my carrots for your 
you know, peanut butter cups or whatever. It's like, it's not a fair trade anyway. But it's like, like, how can we trade with God? He's like, God, if you do this, I'll sacrifice whatever comes out of my door. Yeah, okay, that's great. You know, the Bible talks about every idle word that comes out of our mouth, that we have to give account for that. Every dumb thing that we say. You know, words really matter. In fact, in your notes, we need to always choose our words wisely. Not just in conversation with God, but in conversation with other people. Man, if we bit our tongue a little bit more, maybe that would save us a whole world of hurt, wouldn't it? Man, we need to choose our words wisely. So here he is. I'll sacrifice whatever comes out of the door when I get home. So he comes home, they win the battle. Guess who comes out? His daughter. She's like singing and dancing. She's playing her tambourine. That's the first thing he sees coming out of the house, his daughter, his only child. Man, this is serious stuff. Like, they took their vows seriously. It wasn't like today where we don't really care about contracts and vows and things like that. They took it. The Bible says that we could be snared by the words of our mouth. The Bible says that he ended up following through. Why? Because he was a man of integrity. He was a man of his word. If he said something, he was going to do it. He's going to do it. His daughter, though, before anything happened, she, she asked him if she could have two months with her friends wandering the mountains, mourning the fact that she was going to die a virgin, childless. See, this was a big deal. It was a big deal for her, but it was a big deal for Jephthah, too, because he only had a daughter. This is his only child. This means that his lineage would end now. This was a, a problem for the land of Gilead, knowing that they're not going to have any successor from his family line either. I've read this my whole life. The story always bothered me. You know, it's like, man, what, what a dumb thing to say. But before we jump to assuming that he killed his daughter, because, like, that's the assumption here, that he, like, came back and he, like, you know, killed her, sacrificed her to God. Like, we need to, we need to, we need to consider a few things. First off, this. Human sacrifice was banned. Like, Jephthah knew this. Like, Jephthah knew that, that human sacrifice would not please God. So many theologians, they provide two other likely alternatives, which I kind of prefer to consider, rather than the fact of him killing his daughter as a burnt offering. See, we know a couple things. We know that breaking a vow is a sin. He, he made this vow, and, and he wasn't going to break it. Now, there was some ways that he could get out of the vow had he wanted to, and we don't know if he uh, maybe chose to take them or not. But, but although breaking the vow wasn't good, human sacrifice, I think, was probably a little bit worse, Right? Like, I don't think that would please God. In fact, in Deuteronomy, we see that God's word specifically prohibits anything like this. He was continually getting mad at nations that were violently sacrificing their children. This would not please God. What kind of God wants that to happen? Like, God is in control of every situation. God, God is in control of the battle, but he was also in control of the fact that, that the first person he saw was his daughter. So why, why would this happen? Back to verse 31. He says, this is the vow again. Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it also as a burnt offering. Now, there's one thing that uh, many theologians point out, and it's this. That word and is actually more of like a, like a, a, a mark. It's not actually a word in the Hebrew text. And that, and that word can actually be translated and or. And or. So if we, if we read this with that in mind, it says, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, or I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Kind of throws a contingency in there. Right? And, and that's a possibility. Like, we don't know exactly, but, but it's kind of like you saying, if a person comes out, 
they're going to be dedicated to the temple of God. Much like if you know the story of Samuel, Samuel was dedicated to the temple. We know that people would serve in the temple. They would take care of the, the cleaning, the maintenance, the upkeep. They were there. They were not allowed to marry. They were not allowed to have families, but they would spend the rest of their lives in service to the Lord at the temple. It's almost as if he was saying, whoever I see, they're going to be dedicated to the Lord at the temple, or if it's an animal, I'm going to sacrifice them as a burnt offering on, on, on the altar. But he had to have a contingency too, because if it was an unclean animal, he couldn't do that. So it's like, I'll just offer up a burnt offering. So we don't exactly know the outcome. I just, I just like to kind of throw a little bit of, of like, well, maybe it wasn't as bad as it sounds. We don't really know. But we do know that he was listed as a great man of faith. And, and I think that, that God, uh, in his sovereignty and, and Jephthah and his uh, maybe temporary stupidity, you know, I think they, they worked out a better solution here in the end. So my guess is that she lived as a servant at the temple. They did mourn the loss that she would die as a virgin, which she would die childless, no longer able to carry out the family line, but, but I believe that was probably the extent of it. But here, here's the main lesson in all of this. Main lesson is this, that rejection is not the end of the story. You know, rejection is not the end of the story. You know, he, he had to deal with something that was not his fault. He had, uh, the odds were stacked against him. He was driven out of town. He was a loser. He was a reject. But I believe that the moral of the story here is that you can come back from rejection. Have you ever been rejected before? Man, it's not a good feeling to be rejected. A couple years ago, I was in Home Depot. There was a guy selling solar panels. He's like, hey, can I look at your house? So I pulled, he said, yeah, he pulled up my house. He's like, Oh, well, you don't have adequate sun coverage for, to qualify for our solar panels. And I'm like, oh, you're rejecting me. I didn't even want them. But, like, but just the fact that he rejected me made me like kind of want to stand up for myself. There's other times, too, that when we began to, to launch Thrive more than eight years ago, there was an organization who specializes in launching churches, and they help you, and they coach you, and they, they help to even finance the things. And, and I went through interview after interview after interview, and at the end they said, nah, nah, you're not what we're looking for. We don't think you can do this thing as a church. And you know what? We, we just don't want to have anything to do with that. And I'm like, man, this was rejection. And that one hurt. I'm like, man, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I can't do what, what God has called me to do. But see, rejection is not the end of the story. In your notes, rejection can actually bring us closer to God. Because when the world rejects you, God is not rejecting you. See, Jephthah, when he was rejected, he drew closer to God. He studied scripture. He studied the law. He studied the prophets. He studied poetry. He understood the history of the Jewish people. He understood the workings of God in the land. See, he was rejected, and he got closer to God. God is not the one who rejects. See, when you're rejected, who do we turn to? When people put you down, you have an opportunity. Will you draw closer to God or will you pull farther away from him? See, Jephthah shows that we can be brought back and we can be restored. He didn't allow his circumstances to define who he was. He was rejected by his family. He was rejected by the entire city, but he did not let the rejection define him. So don't let rejection define who you are in God. Instead of us looking at our suffering, 
Instead of us looking at our difficulties, instead of us looking at our challenges and letting those things get us down, we can realize that there is hope, that there is still a God who is working powerfully in us, and that God lets certain things happen in our life to help build our character, to make us into who he wants us to be, so that we can be men and women of valor. We can be mighty warriors for the kingdom of God, and it's possible for us to move from being a reject to a ruler. It's possible for us to move from being a loser to a leader if we stay true to God's word, if we keep our word, if we are faithful to God and never lose hope that God can and will use broken people like us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we thank you that you chose to use a reject like Jephthah. And if you, if you use him, you can certainly use us. You can use us for your glory. You can use us to accomplish the great work that you have for us here on this earth. So let us be men and women of integrity, men and women of character, who are mighty and courageous and bold and standing up for you. If you're here and you don't know the Lord, he's inviting you into his family He's not saying clean up your act and come. He's saying come as you are, broken, rejected, disillusioned, frustrated, full of shame, addicted. Come as you are to Jesus. He says if you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, you speak with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you'll be saved. Won't you call on his name now and say, Jesus, you are my Lord. I put my trust and faith and hope in you and you alone. God is the only one who can take the broken and put them back together. God, you are the only one who can take the rejected and find the worth inside of us. You are the only one who can take the, the addicted and bring us freedom. You are the only one who can restore, can heal can provide, can forgive us of the things that we've done in our life. So give us the strength. We thank you for choosing us. Let us take a stand like Jephthah did. Let us take a stand for you. Let us be bold and courageous. And we invite you, even in our difficulties, even in our trouble, even in our rejection, to build the character in us that you want to be there so that we can accomplish your work, so that you can use us to do what you've called us to do here on this earth in Jesus' name. Amen.